Good morning, everyone. My name is Nathan Barbo, for anyone who doesn't know me. I'm an associate pastor here at Grace Church Bellingham. Dax is out of town this week, so I get the privilege of proclaiming the gospel this morning. Dax has been going through the book of Exodus, and we will be back in Exodus next week. Um, But this week we're going to be looking at Romans 6. You're welcome to turn there in your Bibles if you'd like, but I also have the scripture up on the screen if you'd like to follow along that way. So some of you may know this about me, but I am a huge Star Wars fan. Since I was a kid, I've just loved Star Wars. I remember going to episodes 1, 2, and 3 in theaters as a kid. I remember playing Star Wars with my friends, collecting the little action figures and trading cards. When I was really little, I even convinced a bunch of my friends to do like a Star Wars play with me, and we like filmed it somewhere. There's a VHS out there that has me as Luke Skywalker. I didn't bring it today. <laughs> um, but I love anything Star Wars. I've loved, I haven't even minded the new movies and all the shows. I've, I've watched it all. And so one of the things I'm really excited for is to be able to show my daughters, who are one in three Star Wars when they get older, I'm excited to let them experience this thing that I've loved so much as a kid. To let them... Um, enjoy this part of my childhood. But one of the things I can't decide is what order to show the movies in. You see, do I show it in chronological order, going 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, or do I show them in the way in which they came out? 4, 5, 6, 1, 2, 3, 7, 8, 9. I see some votes for this one. (laughs) You may be surprised how much I've had this debate with people. Like, I have often debated this with people trying to decide which order is the best order to watch Star Wars if you've never seen it before. And you see, part of my debate is because in Episode 5, in Empire Strikes Back, there's a huge twist that happens. There's this huge surprise that happens. At the end of Episode 5, hopefully I'm not ruining this for anyone, but the movie did come out in 1980, so (laughs) you should have had plenty of time to watch it by now. But at the end of Episode 5, Luke Skywalker, who's the Jedi, who's here to save the rebels, is fighting Darth Vader, the evil Sith. And so they're fighting, and Darth Vader has Luke backed up to an edge and is trying to get Luke to join him on the dark side. That they could join forces and become um, powerful and end this war. And so... Darth Vader says to Luke, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. And Luke says, he told me enough. He told me you killed him. And then Darth Vader gives this shocking line, this line that's so surprising. He says, no, I am your father. Right? This huge twist in the movie that the evil Sith is actually the father of this young Jedi who's coming to save the rebels. It was a huge surprise in the movie. It was such a big surprise that George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, didn't want it to get out. He didn't want anyone to know ahead of time. So there were actually only a handful of people that knew this was the line in the movie before, actually, before the actual screening of the movie. You see, they didn't put this line in the script that was given out to the cast. It wasn't the line that was said in the filming of the movie. 
Because you see, for Darth Vader, someone else is in the suit acting as Darth Vader. And as he was acting, he delivers a different line. But the voice of Darth Vader is done by James Earl Jones and voiced over later. And so it wasn't until his voiceover that the line, no, I am your father, was actually added to the movie. And so George Lucas went to these great lengths to keep this, this a surprise. He wanted it to be shocking for people. He wanted it to be this big surprise, this huge twist, that Vader was actually Luke's father. He didn't want people to see it coming. And so today we're talking about Romans 6. And Paul answers a question in this that is in a way that's shocking to me, that's surprising. He answers it in a way that I would never answer this question, in a way that I wouldn't even think about. But before we get to Paul's answer, we need to get a little bit of context for Romans 6. So the Apostle Paul wrote Romans to the Church of Rome, is an incredible book with amazing theology for us. And Paul starts off in this book talking about the wrath of God against the unrighteous. How the unrighteous deserve this wrath of God. And then in chapter 3 of Romans, Paul moves to that no one is righteous. That we're all sinners. That we're all unrighteous. And so then we all deserve this wrath. And that we can't make ourselves righteous. That we need something outside of ourselves. And then Paul shifts and says that we're justified by faith. That we're made righteous by this faith. And we can have peace with God because of this faith. And that just as sin came into the world through one man, so too has this grace come in through one man, Jesus. And then in chapter 5, Paul talks about how we first need the law to show us our sin. The law came to increase our sin. And he ends chapter 5 saying, And where sin increased, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so this sets up a question that Paul is anticipating us to ask. It's the question I wonder if where sin increases, Grace abounds all the more. So it's this question that I wonder, I start to think. And so that's where we come to here in Romans 6. We're going to look starting at verse 1. Um, and so Paul says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So this is, to me, the natural question that comes out of what Paul had just said, that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So if grace is this such amazing thing, this such good thing, and where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, should we go sin more so we can get more grace? Because grace is good, right? So more grace would be more good. So should we just go, let's just go sin a bunch so we can get a whole bunch of grace. Does this make sense? That's where my mind goes with what Paul is talking about in at the end of chapter 5. Like, should we just go sin all the time so we can just accumulate as much grace as we possibly can? 
I mean, this becomes what people start to worry about the grace message at times, right? Like that we're giving them grace, and so then it just gives people the license to go sin. Like they don't need to worry about their sin anymore. We're so worried that people are just going to go cheapen grace, that people are going to have this cheap grace, that people need to get better instead, that we don't want them to cheapen this grace. We start to be like, are you going to continue to be your sinful self? Are you going to not be improving? We start to think that you need to be better. We don't want people taking advantage of this amazing grace that God has given us. We start to get worried about what this grace message, like, well, are people not going to be good enough? And so with this question, we know sinning's wrong. We know people shouldn't be sinning. And so how I expect Paul to answer this question is with some form of law, somehow telling me that sin is wrong, right? That we shouldn't go sin because sin's bad for you or because God commanded us not to sin. It's not right for us to go sin. Or maybe that sin's not good for those around us, like you're hurting other people. How I expect Paul to answer this question of are we to continue in sin that grace may abound is in some way that I should remove my sin, that I should stop sinning because it's bad. That I'm not being more like Christ. That I need to love God and love my neighbor. And that now that I'm a Christian, I need to see my sin decreasing. But this is where I think Paul gives us this shocking answer. He points to something that surprises me. He points to something that I would never point to. He gives this huge twist. And so let's see that that surprising answer Paul gives in verse 2. He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into death? Paul's like, no, don't go on sinning. That's wrong. But then the reason he gives is totally different than what I would expect. His reason isn't law or that sin's bad for you. His reason instead is that you've been baptized into Christ's death. This is surprising to me. This is never what I would answer. If someone came up to me and was like, man, why shouldn't I keep, why shouldn't I go on sinning? My answer wouldn't be, well, don't you know you've been baptized into Christ's death? No, my answer would be something like, no, sin's really bad for you and you shouldn't do it. Or that God told us not to sin or Something along those lines. But this isn't the answer that Paul gives. No, the answer that Paul gives is, don't you know that you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death? This is shocking to me. So some of you have to be thinking, like me, is what does being baptized have to do with this? What does being dunked underwater or Having, you know, when you're an infant, having water sprinkled on your head, what does, what does that have to do with me not going on sinning? Why does that matter? 
And I think what we'll see as we look through Paul's explanation of this is that Paul isn't talking about our water baptism. Instead, what he's talking about is this baptism in Christ, this uniting to Christ in his death and resurrection. This piece that we mirror in our water baptism, but being united to him in Christ's death and resurrection. And that this baptism we have in Christ is moving from death to life. I'm moving from trusting in myself for my righteousness and instead trusting in Christ for my righteousness, that it's about what he's done, pointing to the cross and, and Christ's finished work. So let's look at that baptism. Let's look at what Paul says about that, starting with our death in verse 4. Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul says that we first need this death before we get the new life. That we first need to be united with Christ in his death. We can't just skip over this death piece, but we need to start there. That without this death, we don't get the new life. And so we first need to be baptized into Christ's death. So what is this death? Let's keep going in verse 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Um, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This death Paul was talking about as a death to our old self. It's a death to our flesh. It's a death to our ego. It is us saying that we can't be good enough, that I can't make myself righteous, that I can't make my flesh acceptable to God. And instead, it's saying that what we need is something outside of ourselves, that we need to unite to Christ in his death, that we need our flesh to be put to death in Christ's death for us. Paul is telling us that if we want this new life, first we have to stop trying to be good enough in our flesh. We need to stop trying to be acceptable to God through our flesh. And the sin Paul is talking about isn't individual sins like lying or getting angry at the person who cut you off, or stealing, or all these things. But what he's talking about is this idea of us trying to find goodness in our own action. Us trying to find worthiness before God in my work. I want my flesh to be acceptable to God. Instead, what we need to do is let our flesh die. We need to realize that we can't bring anything to the table. Paul is pushing us 
to see that our flesh has nothing to offer. I mean, this becomes what repentance is, right? A turning from trusting in myself and a turning to trusting in Christ, realizing that I have nothing to offer, that I can't do it myself, but instead that Christ has done it for me and trusting in him for what he has done. That we can't be good enough. My problem, and I think so many of us there are here, is that what I want is to find value in my flesh. I want my flesh to be worth something. I want to show God that I can be worthy. I want to show God that he didn't make a mistake dying for me. I want to show God that I'm holding up my end of the bargain. That I am doing my part. That I was worth dying for. I know we've talked about the plain idea before, but so often we treat Christianity like Jesus is holding up one wing of the plane, and now we just need to hold up that other wing of the plane. And if we're doing our part, we're okay, but when we mess up, then that plane's going down. So it's about us making sure that we hold up that wing of the plane. But that's the opposite of what Paul's talking about here. What he's saying is you can't hold up that wing of the plane. Instead, that your flesh has died. That you can't be righteous. You can't be good. And instead, we're just a passenger on that plane. And Jesus is the one flying that plane. And that's our hope. I need to give up trying to make my flesh good enough. Paul is saying this is what needs to die. That this is the sin problem. That we think our flesh has something to offer. That we think we can somehow make ourselves worthy. But we don't bring anything to offer. That the law kills me. The law comes and accuses me and says that I'm not enough. That I can't be good enough. The law shows me that I can't do it and I need something else. But then when my flesh has died with Christ, then the law no longer accuses me because my flesh has died. Because what the law does is it accuses my flesh. But if my flesh has died with Christ in his death, then the law has nothing left to accuse. And so this becomes what Christianity is, realizing that I have nothing to offer, that it can't be good enough, that instead what I need as a savior, that what I need is someone outside of myself. And this is the first piece of our baptism, is letting our flesh die, uniting with Christ in his baptism, uniting to Christ in his death. That that is our baptism. And even after receiving the Holy Spirit, even after becoming a Christian, It's still not about us perfecting our flesh, but instead realizing that our flesh is dead and that there's no hope in our flesh. And so then it is after this death that we are given new life. So let's look at the second part of our baptism, our new life. Looking at verse 8. It says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So now if we have died with Christ in his death, we will also get this new life. We will also receive this new life with him, being raised with him. We'll be made a new creation. And not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. My problem is, what I want this life to be, is what we just killed in the first section. What I want this life to be, is life in my flesh. That it is me holding up my wing of the plane. That I can make myself acceptable to God. That I can be good enough. We so quickly try to go back to not letting our flesh die. I mean, this is often what we make testimonies, right? Like, think of these great testimonies we've heard. That person who was on drugs and doing all these terrible things, and then they found Jesus, and now they stopped. Now they're better. They were sinners, but once they found Jesus, now they're a good person. This is so often how we talk about Christianity. That I was, I was bad, but I found Jesus, and now, now I do pretty good. I was at a memorial service over this last week. And for this guy, and everyone was talking about all these great things he had done for Jesus. How he had helped start churches, and he had preached all over and done all these great things. Talked about how great he was, how great of a Christian he is. And he did some really cool things. But that isn't what Paul is talking about here. What he's saying is instead is that our flesh needs to die. That our flesh can't be good enough. That there is no righteousness in my flesh. And instead, this righteousness we have is in Christ. And we point to the cross and what he's done for us. And now some of this is a future hope. That someday we will live with him. Someday we will be in heaven with Jesus, which is incredible. Verse 9 said that we will never die again. And that someday there will be no more sin. And so we have this future hope that is coming. We see in Galatians 2, verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so this life we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God. And this hope that we have because of what Christ has done for us. And some of that, like I said, is a future hope. That someday we have these things. But there is a piece of this that is now. That Christ now has called me righteous. That Christ now has called me holy because of his work. And we didn't earn this new life. We don't deserve this new life. But Christ has done it for us. We read earlier today, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Christ now has made us a new creation. This is who we are now. And so in that, while we are in our flesh and see our sin, while I see my mistakes, I see that I got upset at my wife or I yelled at my kids, I know that I'm now alive in, alive in Christ because I've been united to him in his new life. And that in Christ, in this uniting to him, I am totally and completely free from sin now. That this is who I am. That I am righteous and holy. And not because of my work, not because of what I do, but because of what Christ has done. And so I point to him and what he's done for me. And so if we've been baptized in Christ, if we're united to him in his death and resurrection, that our flesh has died with Christ in his death, and we've been united to him in his life, and we've been made righteous, that this is what Christ has done for us, and that now God sees us differently. And this is where Paul goes next talking about what this baptism means for our, for our identity. And so let's look at verse 11. It says, So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God and Christ Jesus. So Paul tells us, now that you've been baptized into Christ, now that you've been united to him with his death and resurrection, that your flesh has died, and you've been raised with him in his life. He's now telling us to think of yourself this way, as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In fact, in the Greek, it's in this imperative mood, which is a command. Paul is commanding us to think of ourselves this way. He's saying, think of yourself this way. This is who you are. This is who you are, is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. My problem is this isn't how I see myself. How I see myself is I see my sin. I see that I had a miscommunication with my wife, and I got really upset at her because she didn't do what I thought she was supposed to do. And it messed up my plans. What I see is someone cut me off, and I yelled at them and got angry at them. I see my sin and that I don't do what I should do. And so then I go right back to thinking that I can't be worthy, that I need to make myself acceptable, that I need to make myself worthy of God, and that I don't want others to see this unworthiness, and so I start to hide my sin, right? I want to hide it. I don't want you to know that I messed up. I don't want you to know that I'm a sinner. I want to think, I want people to think that I'm doing pretty good, that I'm a pretty good person. It's so hard to give up finding value in my flesh. It's so hard to give up 
this peace of wanting to find righteousness in myself. But this is where Paul is pushing us. He's telling us to think of ourselves as God sees us. That God doesn't see our flesh anymore. That our flesh has died in Christ's death. That we're dead to sin. That he no longer sees us as sinners. Instead, now he sees us as alive to Christ, being raised with him in his life, and that he's given us his righteousness. And it's about what Christ has done for us. And that we're alive in Christ because of of this amazing baptism we have, that we've been united to him and what he's done for us. And his Galatians 2.20 said, this life we now live, we have to live by faith. Because that's not what I see. But I need to trust that. Trust that it's about what Christ has done for me. Because what it means is that I am totally and completely acceptable to the Father now. Not because of my work, but because of Christ's work for me. Not because I've stopped sinning, but because I've been baptized with Christ. That in his death and resurrection, I've been raised with him. And so now my life is to proclaim this good news, this amazing baptism this amazing wonder of what we have in Christ, that we've been united with him. And so Paul keeps going in verse 12. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make it obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So remember, this sin that Paul is talking about isn't this getting angry with your spouse or yelling at the person who cut you off, but what he's talking about is us looking for righteousness in ourselves. Us trying to find our righteousness in ourself and what we've done. But there's nothing there. We can't go back to trying to find our righteousness there. It's not about perfecting our flesh. It's not about making me the best me I can be. Instead, what Paul is doing is reminding us that, we are, that our flesh is dead. And so don't go back to trying to improve yourself. That's not what this is about, but instead, it's looking to what Christ has done for me. To live in this spot of having been moved from death to life. That God has called me good, and now trusting who God says I am. That I am a new creation. And that now the law doesn't accuse me, because my flesh has died with Christ in his death. And so now the law has nothing left to accuse And so the law doesn't have dominion over me because my flesh is dead. But instead, we're now a new creation. We have been made perfect in what Christ has done for us. Being united to him in his new life. This new life we have in Christ is because of what he has done. 
reminded of the baptism that he has given us, being united to him. It reminds us of who God says we are. Yet we so easily forget. We're so easily pulled right back into wanting to make it about us and our work. I want the Christian life to be about my self-improvement, about me showing how good I am. Making my flesh have value. When instead what Christianity is about is reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for me. That my flesh has died and there's no hope in me, but instead that it's about what Christ has done for me and that I point to him and his work. That I need a savior. We need to be continually reminded of this. And this is so shocking to me because it's not how I think. I don't think of myself this way. I want the answer to be self-improvement. I want the answer to be improving my flesh. I want to show that I am worthy in my flesh. But the surprise, Paul says, is no. Go back to your baptism. Be reminded that it's about Christ and what he's done for you. That it's uniting to him in his death and resurrection. Martin Luther, in his large catechism, talks about baptism in this way. He says, Thus a Christian life is nothing else than a daily baptism, begun once and continuing ever after. For we must keep at it without ceasing, always purging whatever pertains to the old Adam, so that whatever belongs to the new creation may come forth. Luther talks about this idea, idea that every day we need to be rebaptized. That we need to be reminded that our flesh needs to be put to death. We need to purge this old Adam. We need to purge our flesh. And that our old Adam has been put to death in Christ's death. That our flesh is dead. And this isn't going and getting baptized in water every day. But it's this reminding ourselves this continual renewing of the mind that Christ is for us and we've been united to him in his baptism, in his death and resurrection, of this baptism we have in Christ. That we are a new creation. That we've been united to Christ in his finished work on the cross. The world so easily pulls us back into this old way of thinking. But there's no hope there. There's no hope in us trying to find righteousness in ourselves. We have to let our flesh die in baptism with Christ, in his death. And by faith accept what God says we are, dead to sin and alive to God. This is our constant battle. This is what we, re need, we need to be reminded of, that this is our only hope. Hold on to who God says we are. we have been united to Christ in his death. That my flesh is now dead and now the law has nothing left to accuse. And that I've been raised to new life in Christ, in his resurrection. That he has made me righteous. 
that he has made me holy, and it's by his work and what he's done. And so now, what I leave you with today, what I remind you of, is what Paul said, is to consider yourself this way. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's all we have. That's our only hope. There's no hope in our flesh. But remind yourself, remind each other every day that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is all we have. Hold on to this because you are in Christ. You have been united to him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have come and done this for us. That we have died with you. That we've been united to you in your death and united to you in your resurrection. And that how you see us is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because Lord, that's our only hope. I can't be good enough. I have no hope. And I pray that we could be reminded of that. Reminded of how you see us and what you've done for us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.